Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we could have this time together to study God's Word. We are continuing our study of the Gospel written by Mark. All of these lessons have dealt with how Jesus is Lord. Today, we're looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through the end of that chapter, and actually including the first verse of chapter 9. Now, in this scripture, Jesus confronts his disciples with a key question. Who am I? Who do the crowd say that I am? And more importantly, who do you say that I am? And then Jesus goes on to explain what this means in terms of the kingdom of heaven. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. And I want to pray the prayer that Paul prays in Philippians 1.9. And this is from the message version. Paul writes, So this is my prayer, that your love will flourish, and that you will not only love much, but well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. Making Jesus Christ attractive to all getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. In today's lesson, all of those around Jesus, the religious authorities, the crowds, the disciples, they all grapple with this question of, who is Jesus? And their answer to this question makes a huge difference for their lives. How we answer this question makes a difference in our lives today. So, what can we learn from their answers? Now, we're familiar with the idea of using passwords. You can't get away from them. You know, knowing the right answer to let you get access to your uh, smartphone or your computer or different programs. Now, the answer to this question of who is Jesus, this is the password that gets us admitted into the kingdom of heaven. But it's more than just knowing the answer with our heads. The answer has to be with our hearts as well. You know, there are lots of things that we say we believe, but our actions show that we really don't. For example, if you ask a person who smokes, does smoking cause lung cancer? Most people would answer, yes, we believe smoking causes cancer. But then they light up another cigarette and they prove they don't really believe smoking causes lung cancer for them. In their hearts, they're telling themselves, sure, it causes cancer in some people, maybe most people, but it won't cause cancer for me. I'll stop before it ever gets that far. If you really believe lung cancer causes smoking, it would cause you, or smoking causes lung cancer, it would stop what you did. Uh, so, a lot of times, we say we believe something, but it doesn't really sink into how we live. Jesus said, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, John 1, 8. Knowing the truth is important because it shapes what we do. When we really know that something is true, we act on it. When we believe a lie, we act on that as well. Now, we're looking at Mark and Mark's gospel. Now, we call this Mark's gospel or the gospel of Mark, but this is not really the gospel of Mark. Mark is writing his account of the gospel of Jesus. 
And it's important that we understand exactly what this word gospel means. The, the Greek word uh, is euangelon, which means good news, and then we translate that in English as gospel. This is a technical term. It doesn't mean any kind of news that we might like, but it means a very specific type of news. It's the news of a military or political victory, the news that a king has been victorious over his rivals. Now, what good news is Mark telling us? What king is he talking about? Mark tells us in the very first verse, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So, in this case, the king is Jesus. The kingdom is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The victory is over the forces that oppress uh, those people, uh, the people of Israel, the people of God. So, this news of a king, a Messiah, uh, one who was coming to institute the day of the Lord, this was not new to the Jewish people. They had been anticipating a Messiah for centuries, the last 600, 700 years. The Jewish people had been under foreign occupation. They had been oppressed by a series of foreign uh, rulers, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, and now it was the Romans. So the Jewish people found it hard to believe. How could it be that pagan nations, people who worship false gods, how could it be that they would rule over Israel? the people of the one true and living God. So we can see the humiliation of the Jewish people having to live under the domination of a pagan power. And this is illustrated when we look at what Antiochus Epiphanes did in 168 B.C. To show his contempt for the Jewish people, he desecrates the temple by sacrificing a pig on the temple altar. So you can see why the Jewish people clung to the prophecies of the day of the Lord. They were anticipating this time when God steps in to set things right, when God would send His anointed one, the Messiah. But the problem was they had a totally false idea of what the kingdom of God would be, their idea that it would be a political, a military empire, basically that the Jewish people would replace the Romans, Israel would take its place at the head of the nations. By Jesus' day, the Jewish nation had splintered into several groups, each of them with their own specific idea of how to bring about the day of the Lord. You had the Herodians and the Sadducees. These were the elite of the Jewish people. They felt like that the best situation was to cooperate with the Romans, accept Roman authority in civil, political matters, and then their job was to rule the religious establishment. You had the zealots who took the opposite view. Their idea was if the Jewish people would just have enough courage to rise up, to rebel, to fight back, that God would give them the victory. The Pharisees felt like that the Messiah would not come because society was not pure enough. There was too much sin. There were too many tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners around. They wanted to reform society. And then you had the Essenes. They were saying everybody is corrupt. It's all corrupt. We need to just pull out into the desert 
will please God by separating from everything. And these groups constantly fought and argued between themselves. But they had these false ideas of the kingdom. And because of this, the nation of Israel was headed for disaster. Jesus tries to warn them. When we see Jesus approaching Jerusalem on the week before his death, the Bible tells us that he begins to weep when he comes into view of Jerusalem. Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. As he approached the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And all of this does happen in 70 A.D. Jerusalem rebels and is totally crushed by the Roman army. Now, in today's lesson, we see Jesus confront his disciples with three key truths, the foundation of his gospel. The first truth is Jesus is not just a Messiah, but the Messiah the Son of God Himself. And Jesus is a totally different type of Messiah than what they expected. The second truth, Jesus tells them the only way to obtain real life is to give up your life. And then finally, Jesus gives them a third truth. The kingdom is not somewhere off in the future. The kingdom is present here and now. The scripture we're using today is really the hinge of Mark's story. Everything is going to depend on whether the people understand these things that Jesus is teaching them. Jesus came with good news. He has won the victory. The kingdom of heaven is here. But if they could not get these concepts, if they couldn't understand this new kingdom, they would never be able to access it. So we want to look at this first point. Jesus is not just a Messiah, but the Messiah. But he is a totally different Messiah than what you expected. His kingdom will operate on different principles. The tragedy is the nation of Israel was anticipating a Messiah. They were anticipating the kingdom. And yet, when Jesus comes with everything God had promised them, they missed it because they would never recognize the truth of the Messiah. And Jesus made it plain, their failure to grasp the truth. This was not a head problem. This was not because they, they had no intellectual powers. It was a problem with their hearts. They didn't see the truth because they refused to see it. In Matthew 13, verses 13 and 14, Jesus describes the Jewish people as, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. The question for us, do we do any better at knowing these truths? We fully recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but do we really understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah? Do we know what Jesus is talking about when he says, those who save their life will lose it, but those who lose their lives for my sake will find it? Let's begin with this first question. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Our text begins, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. 
On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about it. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, we see three groups here, and they answer the question in three different ways. First, there were the crowds. What did they think about Jesus? Well, they recognized his ability to do things that most people could not do. They saw Jesus heal the sick, cast out demons, make lame people walk. They even saw him raise people from the dead. Over and over, we are told they were amazed at what they saw Jesus do. The crowds admitted, this man must be from God or he could not do the things he is doing. John 9, 32, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But it becomes clear, most of those who were flocking to Jesus, they never realize who he is. They recognized him as a messenger, a Messiah, but not as the Messiah, the Son of God. In their view, he was one of the revered figures of Jewish history. Uh, maybe John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Maybe they thought of him as a new David. But they did not see him as the Son of God. Now, the religious leaders, they also could not deny what Jesus was doing. They were forced to recognize that Jesus demonstrated power, supernatural power. But they said his power comes from demons. Jesus is really an imposter. He's not a prophet, a man of God at all. The disciples, led by Peter, announced that Jesus was the Messiah. In the words of Matthew, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this question about who Jesus is, it comes down to a matter of authority. Did Jesus have the authority to make the changes he was, he was making to teach what he was teaching? We get an example of this when Jesus goes to his hometown in Mark chapter 6. The people who knew him from his hometown, they begin asking, where did this man get all this? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And then it says, they took offense at him. After Jesus cleanses the temple, the chief priests and the elders, they come to Jesus and they ask, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, the religious leaders flat out denied both who Jesus was and his authority to do these things. They insisted Jesus was a fake and an imposter. The crowds, they seemed to recognize Jesus' authority, but really they didn't. They saw Jesus as a Messiah, but not the Messiah. And in the end, they did not recognize Jesus either. Neither group, the crowds or the religious leaders, saw Jesus as God's anointed one, the Lamb of God. The disciples, led by Peter, recognized who Jesus was, recognizing he was the Messiah. 
but even they never recognized his full authority. Instead, they insisted on limiting Jesus, on insisting that Jesus be their type of Messiah, that he fit their definition of what the Messiah should be. And we see this in Peter's response. Peter was the one disciple who had finally spoken what all the rest of them were thinking. Peter is the one who openly confesses Jesus is the Messiah. The scripture tells us Jesus spoke plainly about this, about what would happen to him. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. We don't really grasp how horrifying this idea, the idea of a crucified Messiah, just how awful it was to the Jewish people. 1 Corinthians 1.23 gives us a hint of this. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The Jewish people found the idea repugnant, scandalous. They hated the whole idea of the cross. You know, for Jewish people, being crucified went beyond everything. It, it even placed you under a curse. Uh, there's a verse in Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. There was nothing dignified about this type of execution. You were hung like an animal, defenseless, exposed. You know, it's hard for us to really get the impact because we haven't witnessed this. But if you had seen a crucifixion, you would never have forgotten it. To the Jewish people, it was inconceivable that this could be God's plan. If Jesus was crucified, most of them saw it as automatic proof that Jesus was not really who he claimed to be. When Jesus was on the cross, look at how the religious authorities mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. They were basically saying the fact that Jesus is hanging there, defenseless, this proves our point. If he were really God's son, God wouldn't let him lay there like that. God would rescue him. So the fact that he's on the cross shows us he was lying about all of this. And Peter just cannot let this stand. He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Peter is like all of the good Jewish people of his day. He knew the stories of the, of the Jewish people. He had grown up on the, on the stories from the Bible, the stories that told when times had been at their worst, when Israel seemed totally defeated, God would step in to save his people. When the Israelites were trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, God stepped in to divide the waters. When David faced what seemed to be an unstoppable foe in the giant Goliath, God stepped in and gave him the victory. You know, this was the hope of all of the devout Jewish people. And we see this clearly in the Psalms, the songbook of the Jewish people. Over and over again, we hear the psalmist cry out to God. The psalmist is in desperate trouble. But the end of the psalm, the psalmist reaffirms that his trust is in God, that God will deliver. For example, you can look at Psalm 22. The psalm begins with the psalmist saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. 
The psalmist goes on to detail the awful conditions he is facing. But Psalm 22 doesn't end with this. The point of the psalm is found when you get to the end. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. So the psalmist is saying things look hard, things look tough, but I have faith that God is going to step in to redeem his people. But Jesus is telling them something very different. Jesus saying this time something far different is going to take place. And we can look at what actually happens. When Jesus is on the cross, he utters these very same words. The scripture tells us, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we see Jesus uttering the exact same words of the prophet, or as the psalmist. The psalmist ends with an expression of hope. God is going to hear. God is going to intervene. But what happens when Jesus utters these words? We're told he cries out, and then he gives up the Spirit. God doesn't step in. God doesn't do anything to stop this. So when the psalmist asks, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist is confident this will not be the final answer. But Jesus is telling his disciples, This will be what happens. I will be left to die. God is not going to step in at the final moment. So you can see why Peter will not accept this, why Peter cannot accept this. You know, Matthew gives us his exact words. He tells tells Jesus, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. The contemporary English version gives it as, God would never let this happen to you. Peter cannot conceive that the Messiah will suffer and die in this way. So, when Jesus asks, Who am I? We see three responses. Each one of them gets a little closer to the truth. The religious leaders, they're way off. You know, their conclusion, Jesus is an imposter, using the power of demons to drive out demons. They don't recognize Jesus as having any authority whatsoever. The crowds recognize Jesus as a Messiah, a prophet sent from God. They're willing to grant Jesus some authority in this light, but they don't recognize Jesus as the authority. The disciples recognize Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, but they're still wanting to define for Jesus what exactly that means. The question for us, how are we going to answer this question? What authority do we recognize in Jesus? Now, today, we would never dream of classifying Jesus as demon-possessed. We would never accuse him of having a demon. But, Many will stop with the idea that Jesus was a wise teacher, a moral, an ethical man who showed us many good things about how to live a good life. Now, in the church, we as believers, we go beyond this. We are very willing to say Jesus was more than just a good man. We're willing to confirm Jesus as the Messiah. So we get as far as the disciples had gotten. But do we recognize the full authority of Jesus? 
Or do we insist on Jesus being the Messiah that we want him to be? Do we submit to the full authority of Jesus? Do we surrender ourselves to his complete control? How we answer this question is key. Do we truly recognize him as as the Messiah? Or do we say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but then we insist that he be the Messiah that we want? If we do this, we are not truly recognizing him. If Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus has the right to determine everything that happens to us, everything that we will do in his service. So, we give up our right to control, to determine for ourselves. In other words, we accept Jesus not only as Savior, but we surrender to Jesus as King and as Lord. Now, Jesus as Savior would be enough if all we were concerned about was punishment for our sins. As Dallas Willard puts it, if we were just concerned about sin management, having our sins forgiven so that we can go to heaven. But there's much more to the gospel, to the good news than this. God created us to be icons. And this is a Greek word uh, to mean God-bearer, you know, God's representatives. We are to be holy. 1 Peter 1.16 tells us, Be holy because I am holy. Holiness is the very essence of God. You know, holiness is not what God does, but it's who God is. And if we are going to be the images of God, bear the nature of God, holiness has to be who we are as well. And we cannot partake of God's holiness until we have surrendered completely to Christ, until we have consecrated our all to Him, surrendering our very selves, recognizing Him as King and and as Lord. And when we do this, He crucifies this sinful nature among us. It leaves us free to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we don't recognize the authority of Jesus, we end up with a self-centered church, a church that lacks power, a church that lacks purity. As Scott McKnight puts it, we end up with a church of the decided rather than the discipled. Now, Jesus goes on to explain to them how this kingdom is going to operate. Our text tells us, Then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, Jesus is giving them a core principle of the kingdom. All of them had their idea of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. You know, the crowds, they expected to be healed, to see miracles, to be fed. The disciples, they expected to be co-rulers of a new Jewish empire. You know, the glory days of King David would return. But what Jesus wants them to understand, this is not what the kingdom is about. Just as the Messiah is not a military leader, one who comes to smite his enemies, the key to power in this kingdom is not being able to push and shove your way to the top. Instead, it's just the opposite. To have life in this kingdom, you must surrender. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake 
for the gospel will save it. Are you living your best life? How do you know? What does the best life look like? You know, as we've discussed before, many American Christians define best life in actually non-biblical worldviews. They define it in terms of consumerism. The best life is one where I can have everything that I want, where I can purchase the objects, the experiences that I want. They view it through individualism. The best life is one where I have complete freedom and control, freedom to make any choice that I want to. They view it through celebrity culture. The best life is one where I am celebrated by others, where I'm seen as important. I'm an influencer. Jesus contradicts all of this and says, to have your best life, you must give it up. To save your life, you must lose it. And the paradox, it's only by giving up your life that you gain it. Now, how does this make any sense whatsoever? Well, when you give up your life, you become poor. And Scripture tells us that there is a preferential option for the poor. In other words, being poor gives us a way to become rich in spiritual things. Jesus expressed this in the Beatitudes when he said, Blessed are the poor. When you hold on to your life, you lose it because you're holding on to something that's not real. It's not permanent. It cannot be maintained. Uh, Jim Elliott is famous for saying, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, life is not possible apart from God. And if we are going to be in God's presence, we have to be holy. And the basis for God's holiness is His love. When we say God is holy, we are saying God is love. And our holiness is the ability to participate in this love, to love God and to love our neighbor. So we cannot have life, true life, until our self-love, our carnal nature, is replaced by God's perfect love. So as long as we are putting ourselves first, our self-love is triumphant, it's dominant. And this means we cannot have real life. And so to get life, I have to start by surrendering, by consecrating my life. I recognize the sovereignty and the authority of King Jesus. Now, Jesus ends this by telling them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, we put a whole lot of meanings on this, and a lot of meanings really that weren't intended. I don't think Jesus is offering us some kind of secret knowledge of the end times. It's not about how the world is going to end. You know, I think Jesus is being very straightforward here. He, matter-of-factly, is assuring his disciples, the kingdom is something that will soon be here, not something far off in the future, but it's coming, coming so soon that you who are sitting here now, you will see it. This isn't something far off in the future, something that will only be reality one day. The kingdom will be here and now. Jesus has just finished telling them, to save your life, you must give it up for the kingdom and for me. Now Jesus is making the point, this is not something to be put off into the future. 
You cannot think, well, someday I'll make the decision. Jesus is telling them the time is now. The kingdom is soon to be here. Now, this teaching of Jesus, that he would suffer, that he would be crucified, this was upsetting news to the disciples. And Jesus knew that when they experienced this, it would shake them to the core. And he knew that their response would be, where is this promised kingdom? What has happened to the kingdom that we were promised? And it's easy or very tempting for them to think something has gone wrong. Jesus wants them to know everything has been put into place. The kingdom will soon be here. Not, not in hundreds of years, not off in the distant future. It'll be here while you are still alive to see it. Now, he doesn't say all of you because for at least one of them, for at least Judas, the kingdom would never arrive. We know that Judas kills himself before he ever sees the kingdom. Uh, but what Jesus was telling them is the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. It's hard for us to understand this because we fail to, to understand that we live in both the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Jesus is very definite. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is present in your lifetime. But the kingdom is not yet here in its fullness, in its totality. God has inaugurated his kingdom with the death and the resurrection of Christ. But God has still not consummated the kingdom. That's still in the future. So we live in the tension between those two events. And we have to keep both of these uh, in our minds. And it's hard to do. And we tend to go to two extremes. To either deny that the kingdom has come. To feel that, well, Christ doesn't really interact in our world today. To feel like, well, God is real, but not necessarily here with us. Or we deny that there's still yet of the kingdom to arrive. We ignore the reality of suffering and illness. You know, the idea that if we only had enough faith, all of this would cease to exist. Jesus is telling them the kingdom is now. It is here. It can be accessed. Not in its totality, not in its fullness, but you can play an important part in this. And so what we understand, we need to recognize who Jesus is. Not the Messiah we want him to be but the Messiah that he came to be. And that means surrendering to the full authority of Jesus. And when we do this, Jesus tells us, if you give up your life for my sake, that's when you'll find it. And when we find this life, Jesus assures us, this is life not just for some time far off in the future, but this is life for the here and the now. You can enter God's kingdom today. And I hope you take Jesus up on that, putting these ideas into practice, trusting him that he will do all of these things that he said that he'll do. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the good news, that you have won a tremendous victory and that your kingdom, Lord, is in effect. It's here, it's now, and it's also coming. And we want to be part of that kingdom. In your name, amen.